Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I sound a little excited because it's time for Unearthed. Yay! It's like our own fabulous Christmas present to us and listeners. Yeah, it's a lot of people's favorite episodes. Uh, so much so that in July, when we said we have too much of this, how in the world should we tackle it? Folks were like, do an extra one now. So we did. <laughs> and yet, there's still plenty. <laughs> I don't, I can't stress how much bigger the unearthed pin board is than any other year I have worked on it. There are 420 pins on it currently. There will be more because we are recording this on December, what is it, 7th? It's the 8th. I don't know what day it is. Uh, we're recording this on December 8th. Really anything that came through after the 6th is probably not in here. And so, you know, I'll be adding more pins to reflect all the things that happened between now and the end of the year. But, uh, to compare the first year we did this on Pinterest to keep up with all of our things that were unearthed, it was 2014 and there were only 107 pins on that board. So four times more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Holly and I actually got to participate in some unearthing of our own this year as part of our trip to the Boston area to do some filming. We got to be part of the archaeological dig in Harvard Yard that's part of the undergraduate uh, course offerings. Students actually get to do an archaeological dig every two years, and then the next semester they catalog everything that they found. Uh, and we found some things like pipe stems and roof tiles and bricks and other evidence of very early buildings at Harvard. Some of the students found really interesting things while we were there, including entire medicine bottles and stoppers. Um, there was a, a particular piece that, that they, uh, found that, that looked to have a little face carved on it that was really lovely. And so we have, a video of this on our website and we will put it in the show notes for these episodes and we'll put it up on our social media again when this episode's when episode comes out so folks can see the things that we got to uh help unearth a little bit but mostly watch other folks unearth uh, it was a really great experience so part 2 is going to be a bit more of a hodgepodge but today in part 1 we have roughly 3 acts we've got some stuff that seems like it is happening every year uh, some things that are older than we thought before, and a whole bunch of shipwrecks. Yay! So the very first unearthed that Tracy and I ever worked on featured some artifacts that had been unearthed by a badger, <laughs> which continues to be one of my favorite things of all time. Uh, burrowing animals are one of the biggest threats, actually, to British artifacts. So this actually happens pretty often. And this year, a badger in Wiltshire near Stonehenge managed to dig up a cremation urn and some pieces of pottery before that little shenanigans was be- was discovered by humans. When some actual humans did come over to see what was going on, uh, they also, on further excavation, found an archer's wrist guard, a bronze saw, a copper chisel with a, de- a decorated bone handle, and cremated human remains that had probably been in that urn that the badger dug up. They're all from about 2000 BCE and probably belonged either to an archer or somebody who made archery supplies. 
In the words of archaeologist Richard Osgood, quote, we would never have known these objects were in there, so there's a small part of me that is quite pleased the badger did this. But it probably would have been better that these things had stayed within the monument where they'd resided for 4,000 years. Uh, presumably different badger also unearthed some 4,500 year old human remains in Ireland this year. This is not even the only badger story. Here's in my head the cartoon is this. There's an archaeologist, archaeologist badger who's like, why do these humans keep messing with my finds? That's our TV show. <laughs> Archaeology badger. Da da da. Apparently, we're never going to be done talking about Richard the Third who we have been talking about for so long that the first time I was not on the show yet. Yeah. (laughs) It was Holly and Sarah talking about Richard III and being found under that car park. This year, archaeologists announced the creation of a 3D digital reconstruction of him in his gravesite. This was announced on the anniversary of his reinterment, and this reconstruction is based on his position as it was found under the car park made using extensive photography of the site. You can look at it online yourself and and zoom all around it. We will put a link in the show notes. And we have not talked about old messages in a bottle every year, but it has definitely happened before. Uh, a man threw a message in a bottle into the ocean, offering a shilling to whoever found it. Uh, this year, a German woman named Marianne Winkler found it while on holiday and was indeed giving a shilling even though it was 108 years ago when the bottle was originally thrown. This is because the man in question who offered this shilling was George Parker Bitter, who was throwing things into the North Sea to measure the patterns of his currents. The Marine Biological Association in Plymouth, Devon, paid Bitter's debt off by apparently getting an old shilling on eBay and sending it to her with a note of thanks. Uh, also, this particular message in a bottle got the Guinness Book of World's Records record this year for being the oldest message in a bottle. But, you know, who's counting? Until we find an even older one. Uh, we also have yet another update brought to you by Crossrail, which has come up a number of times over the years. So this year, DNA tests confirmed that a burial pit of Great Plague victims who died between 1665 and 1666 and were discussed previously on Unearthed, uh, on an Unearthed episode did indeed die of Yersinia pestis or bubonic plague. And we have another feels like annual update on Amelia Earhart this time that she may have died as a castaway, and that is based on new analysis of a bone that has been part of the Earhart body of knowledge for quite some time. This is the work of the International Group for Historical Aircraft Recovery, uh, or TIGAR, if you would make it into an acronym, whose Earhart project is ongoing. There are announcements about it. I mean, it really does seem like every year, and every year we get a lot of really excited notes from folks, and every year it's like, this is a this is a, a new piece of analysis on a thing that already has been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So this becomes different because it suggests that she did not crash and die in the crash. She put down or crashed and then died on the island later. Yeah. yeah. But that was already a theory that people already had. Yeah. And so this, this is, is just, like a piece of bone we already knew about. And, and now we really know about it. It's I'm underwhelmed. <laughs> what I'm saying is by the annual Amelia Earhart <laughs> knowledge. 
Don't sugarcoat it. Uh, we also have a couple of things this year that aren't exactly older than they thought, but they're something-er than we thought. Uh, so here they are. That will become clear in just a moment. Neanderthals might have been smarter than we thought. <laughs> uh through things like cave paintings, we know for certain that manganese dioxide has been used as a pigment all the way back to the Stone Age. However, Neanderthals in southwestern France had these relatively large blocks of it, way more than a person might need for a pigment, especially since there are other black pigments that are a lot easier to obtain. There's a lot of manganese dioxide found in nature, but it does take time and energy to go find it, which raised a question of what could be so special about it that Neanderthals would spend time gathering it instead of doing things like gathering food. And the answer? Fire! Uh, these blocks, when powdered, lowered the auto-ignition temperature of wood shavings and increased their rate of combustion, meaning that they caught fire more easily and they burned better. And since manganese, uh, manganese dioxide by itself doesn't burn, the fact that Neanderthals may have been gathering it for this purpose suggests an amount of curiosity and non-intuitive problem solving that aren't often attributed to them. Also, according to a paper published in the journal Antiquity this year, uh, Neanderthals use toothpicks. Ta-da! Uh, the next something-er thing is the Silk Road, which went further than we thought, according to analysis of textiles found in Nepal. This cloth uh, that was found was dated to the years between 400 and 650, and they included degummed silk fibers and munjeet and Indian lac dyes. And since there wouldn't have been a local source of silk, this suggests that Samsung, Nepal, where the artifacts were found, was in fact connected to the Silk Road. Yeah, so it wasn't just some kind of remote place that nobody ever went, as had previously been suspected. It was connected to this much larger trading network. We are going to get to a big chunk of things that it turns out are a lot older than we thought before, uh, after a quick word from a sponsor. Here we go with a whole lot of things that we've learned this year are a lot older than we thought. A mammoth carcass was discovered in the Siberian Arctic in 2012. And in January of this year, a team published a paper in the journal Science called Early Human Presence in the Arctic Evidence from 45,000-Year-Old Mammoth Remains, which examined cut marks in that mammoth. There haven't been any tools found in the area, but the mammoth's bones have evidence of injuries or cuts that were caused by human-wielded weapons or possibly Neanderthals. If verified, this find means that humans made their way to the Arctic about 45,000 years ago, which is 10,000 years earlier than previously thought. They're beyond prompt. They're early. Uh Cambridge University's Liverholm Center for Human Evolutionary Studies, uh, which often goes by the abbreviation LCHES, discovered the partial remains of 27 people in Kenya in 2012. According to findings released this year, these remains appear to be evidence of a massacre that took place about 10,000 years ago. Six were children and eight appeared to be female, including one who was pregnant. This is the earliest known massacre, and it suggests that the history of human warfare goes back even longer than previously thought. There is other Stone Age evidence of conflicts between groups of hunter-gatherers, but in terms of a massacre that was likely a community or an extended family unit who were killed, this is really the oldest. If a hypothesis 
that was published in January is confirmed. Humans made a visual depiction of volcanic eruption much earlier than previously thought. The Chauvet cave paintings are some of the oldest, most intricate, and best preserved in the world. And an interdisciplinary team of researchers studying them compared geological evidence of nearby eruptions with dating methods to confirm when certain paintings were created. There's a connection between a crimson and white painting that looks like an upward spray and a nearby volcanic eruption that probably would have had a similar shape. Both happened 30,000 to 40,000 years ago. So the window is wide, but there's still a likelihood that that is a depiction. Yeah. And uh, this particular painting without that context was pretty unusual. Most of the other paintings around it are of easily identifiable and pretty detailed animals. So this somewhat abstract spray thing didn't make a lot of sense until it was viewed as as a volcano and not as a weird swirly abstraction. If confirmed, this means that the oldest depiction of a volcanic eruption is way, way older than we previously thought, because before this point, the oldest known visual depiction of a volcano erupting was from a mural in Turkey that is a comparatively young, only 9,000 years old. Just a baby. As as compared to 30 (laughs) to 40,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, next up is fairy tale. So we knew they were old, but apparently they were also older than we thought. According to a paper published in Royal Society Open Science, at least one fairy tale goes all the way back to the Bronze Age. The linguistic research on this was the work of Sarah Grassa da Silva, a social scientist and folklorist, as well as uh, Jamshid Tehrani, who's an anthropologist. What they did was they winnowed down 275 fairy tales from Indo-European languages to the very most basic essential stories. Then they constructed phylogenetic trees, so the same kinds of trees that are used to illustrate evolution in living things to construct how far back these stories went. It was sort of like following linguistic footprints back in time to the point where these languages and their stories split off from each other. And through this analysis, they found evidence that some fairy tales are 5,000 years old, and one, The Smith and the Devil, is about 6,000 years old. In The Smith and the Devil, a smith sells his soul to an evil supernatural being in exchange for the power to weld any material to another. Then he welds the evil being to his anvil to get out of giving up his soul. This actually supports Wilhelm Grimm's assertion that fairy tales were thousands of years old, which was long discredited, although at least one folklorist has questioned whether ancient knowledge of metalworking was sufficient to support the idea of having a word for smith. Yeah, before all this, pretty much everyone except for Wilhelm Grimm had been like, oh yeah, they're, they're a few hundred years old. And this is like, no, thousands. Five thousand. Yeah. Pacific Islanders may have made their way to Southeast Asia, the mainland of Southeast Asia, much earlier than previously thought. And this find actually comes as a result of mitochondrial DNA evidence that was being studied in in an effort to answer a completely different question. That question was why are uh, Austronesian languages, which are spread across a very large geographical area with big, big chunks separated by long stretches of ocean, why are these uh, vast sort of diverse area of languages, why are they so similar? So for a long time, the cultivation of rice in mainland China got the credit for this similarity. The idea was that rice cultivation 
first spread to Taiwan about 4,000 years ago, and that then Taiwanese language roots spread outward from there with the practice of rice cultivation. But this DNA evidence suggests that there was an earlier migration that played a role, from Indonesia to Southeast Asia 8,000 years ago. There was still a migration out of Taiwan, but migrants from Taiwan made up only about 20% of the region's population outside of Taiwan. So that original question about Austronesian language is still somewhat unanswered. One theory is that Taiwanese migrants were established as a higher social class and consequently had a greater influence on the language, even though their population was smaller. Discovery of the world's oldest fermented fish means that Nordic civilization is probably older than we previously thought. While excavating a 9,200-year-old settlement, archaeologists found evidence of a large-scale fish fermenting operation, and that would have only been necessary and also possible with a large established population staying in one place. Previously, it was believed that Nordic peoples were migratory that long ago and that they were sustaining themselves through foraging and fishing at a more subsistence level. But fermenting fish allows it to be stored and used later. And it's also a kind of complicated process, which means that not only were people staying in one place earlier than previously thought, but they also were more advanced by that point than previously thought in terms of their technological skills. People also got to Ireland earlier than we thought, which we know thanks to a bare bone found in an Irish cave in the 1920s that was radiocarbon dated this year. Based on cut marks on that bone and those tests, a human being butchered the bear sometime around 10,500 BCE, which is more than 2,000 years before the previously believed arrival of people in Ireland, which we had thought was sometime in 8,000 BCE. In addition to the fact that people were in Ireland earlier than previously thought, the fact that they were butchering bears probably had a not-yet-explored ramification on the local ecosystems. Previously, uh, you know, study of the ecosystems of um, of Ireland were based on the idea that there were 2,000 or 2,500 more years without human involvement uh, before now. Yeah, that will shift the needle. Uh People in West Africa started harvesting shea trees to make shea butter a thousand years earlier than we thought. The year 100 versus the previously believed year 1100. They figured this out by analyzing shells knocked off the shea nuts found in sites where people have been living for about 1,600 years. In addition to pushing back the first use of shea by such a long period, the shells also show that people began cultivating these trees. With human cultivation, the shells become thinner and more consistent, which they were able to trace through these shell fragments. Apart from shea butter, which some people also pronounce more like she, uh, which is used in medicine and skincare, shea oil is also used in cooking, and shea wood is used for building because it's resistant to termites. Axes are also older than we thought. Uh, <laughs> before this particular discovery of a fragment of an axe head in Western Australia, the earliest ground edge axes were from Japan circa 35,000 years ago. But this find, reported in the journal Australian Archaeology, is between 44,000 and 49,000 years old and is from either the same time as or just after humans first arrived on the continent of Australia. 
This suggests that ground or polished axes arose in at least two places on Earth independent of one another. In addition to this axe find, Aboriginal peoples settled the interior of Australia earlier than previously thought, which is confirmed thanks to some serendipity. A man who took a little detour to answer the call of nature stumbled upon a significant find in Australia, which was a rock shelter with a blackened roof, which was adorned with art. Fortunately, Giles Han, who was the person who made this pit stop, is an archaeologist and doctoral student, and he knew that he was looking at something significant. This rock shelter in Australia's southern interior appears to have been occupied almost as long as humans have been in Australia, about 10,000 years earlier than humans were thought to have moved that far into the interior. Barley made its way to China and was used in beer about a thousand years earlier than previously thought, which we know thanks to residues on a 5,000-year-old piece of pottery. This is intriguing not just because of that thousand-year time difference, but also because it indicates a mix of Chinese and Western brewing traditions that went into this particular uh, pottery jar full of beer. Barley was a staple in brewing in the West long before in China, where other grains were used to ferment into delicious alcohol, which, just so folks know, upcoming episode on the history of beer coming soon <laughs> to this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so indigo. We thought it was used as early as 4,400 years ago, but in reality... It's closer to 6,200 years ago, which we now know thanks to textile fabric found in Peru. Not only is this Peruvian sample older than previously known indigo-dyed textiles, but it's geographically also quite far away from that 4,400-year-old sample, which was in Egypt. And we know this thanks to some scraps of woven cotton found in 2007 and 2008, whose significance uh, was really not clear until this year. Now, we will take a break for another quick word from a sponsor before we talk about a truly astounding number of shipwrecks. So, uh, last year, we talked about what seemed at the time an astounding 22 shipwrecks being found in the Aegean Sea. And this year, they found 23 more, bringing the total to 45. Not to be outdone, a different team reported 41 shipwrecks discovered during a seabed survey of the Black Sea, and then Historic England announced that there are probably 40,000 undiscovered shipwrecks off the coast of Britain. Because of their recency, their number, and in Britain's case, the fact that these are not discovered, these have not really thoroughly been studied yet. <laughs> I This is, um, what is the name of that game? In Pirates of the Caribbean, is it Liar's Dice, where they're all kind of bidding on what they think they will find under the cup? Oh, I, I, I don't recall that, but that is a game that is played that way. Yeah, this is this is the shipwreck version. Well, I bid forty thousand shipwrecks in January. Crews building a hotel in Alexandria, Virginia, found an eighteenth-century shipwreck described as quote sturdily built and well preserved. Alexandria is actually rather far inland to be home to a shipwreck. It's just south of Washington, D.C., but it's situated on the Potomac River, and the going theory is that the ship is part of waterfront landfill and was intentionally sunk there. 
and this is not unheard of at all. Quite a lot of waterfront cities are constructed on landfill, and Alexandria had strong enough suspicions that there might be something significant under there that it passed the Archaeological Protection Code in 1992, which requires archaeological study before any work begins in the area. And they're doing quite a lot to preserve and study this particular wreck, including extensive 3D imaging studies and then attempting to keep the wood in a wet environment to preserve it for further study later. A similar but much newer shipwreck was also found in the Boston seaport earlier this year probably unintentionally wrecked in the 1800s, but buried under landfill later. Another wreck that was probably intentional. Researchers hauled a nearly intact Dutch shipwreck dating back to medieval times out of the Aisle River. It was probably sunk on purpose in an effort to divert the river's course about 600 years ago. The vessel itself was actually found in 2012, but its raising of the riverbed was part of a multi-year marine archaeology effort to bring it up intact, and that stuff was done this year. They did this with the help of a massive suction operation, a crane, and a hammock-like web of straps and cables. It was way more complicated, of course, than a hammock, though. Every strap had its own motor to compensate for the variations in pressure and tension that were needed for this delicate job. The ship, known as a cog, was a specialized trading vessel and measured 20 meters or 65 feet long. And the reason they think that it was sunk there on purpose uh, is that it was placed perpendicular to the flow of the river. And there are other vessels that were sunk in that same location. The idea is that they were probably trying to prevent silt buildup that was keeping other vessels from being able to dock in the river. Uh, Their hope with this particular wreck was to dry it out safely and then put it in a museum. In September 1871, 33 whaling ships got trapped in pack ice off the coast of Alaska after the wind direction didn't shift to blow the ice out to sea as it had done in years past. The ice soon destroyed the ships and their crews were stranded until seven more ships were able to rescue them. In January of this year, NOAA archaeologists announced that they had found the hulls of two of these trapped ships thanks to a combination of global warming and sonar searches. That disaster is an interesting story on its own. The rescue vessels were also whalers, and they had to dump their cargo in order to be able to rescue more than 1,200 officers, crew, and families who were stranded when these vessels became uh, trapped in the pack ice. Although nobody was killed, it it seriously damaged an already struggling whaling industry in the United States, not just because of the loss of so many ships, but also because the rescue ships had to dump all of their cargo to make room for the the passengers they were taking on. And this announcement, uh, for clarity, was actually made at the very tail end of 2015, but it was after we had already recorded last year's Unearthed Episodes. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that I tagged this year that had like a website that was launched this year, but an announcement that was at the telltale end of last year. In 2012, crews scanning the seabed in preparation for the UK's East Anglia offshore wind farm found a sunken submarine. They had initially thought that it might be Dutch in origin, which would have made it the last Dutch World War II submarine whose whereabouts are as yet unknown. But this year, after study, this was conclusively found to not be that at all. It was neither Dutch nor from World War II. It was German and from World War I. And it sank sometime after it left on patrol on January 13th, 1915, possibly due to having struck a mine. 
And in similar news, a vessel believed to be a British World War II submarine was found off the coast of Sardinia in May of this year. There were also some World War II aircraft found in the ocean this year, but I did not write them into this uh, list of unearthed things. An iron-hulled Civil War-era steamer was found off the coast of Oak Island, and that's the Oak Island in North Carolina, not the one with the money pit. Uh, it was discovered in February during sonar operations and was immediately suspected to be a blockade runner. That's one of the ships that would try to break through the Union blockade to deliver supplies to the Confederacy during the Civil War. By April, the state's Department of Natural and Cultural Resources was, quote, 99% sure that it's the Agnes E. Fry. The Agnes E. Fry was one of three blockade runners known to be lost in that particular area, and it's the first Civil War era find in that part of the ocean in decades. Additionally, it's one of the best-preserved shipwrecks off the North Carolina coast. In 1998, a ship was found off the coast of Oman, and excavations started in 2013. This year, Oman's Ministry of Heritage and Culture announced the findings. It's believed to be the Esmeralda from Vasco da Gama's fleet, which sank in a storm in May of 1503. This would have been during Vasco da Gama's second voyage to India. It's the oldest shipwreck from Europe's Age of Discovery to be found and excavated. More than 2,800 artifacts have been brought up from the site, including a bronze bell marked with the year 1498, suggesting that's the year that the ship was built. Rare coins and a copper alloy disc bearing the Portuguese coat of arms. And another first, this was Oman's first effort at underwater archaeology, and it was undertaken with an international team of experts. All right, lastly, this year they found the HMS Terror, companion to the HMS Erebus, which we talked about in our unearthed episode dedicated to the Franklin Expedition in 2014. The discovery of the Erebus basically confirmed what First Nations oral history had been saying all along. With the terror, Sammy Kovic, an Inuk man whose first language is Inuktitut, first spotted what he was suspected was one of the two ships about six years ago. The wreck had been part of the area's oral history for more than 150 years already at that point. And he took pictures of himself with it, but then he lost the camera. So with no evidence, he kept the find to himself, suspecting that no one would believe him. However, Adrian Shimnowski of the Arctic Research Foundation eventually gained his trust, and in September, his testimony led researchers directly to the wreck. This find actually led to a fair amount of drama about whether the Arctic Research Foundation was supposed to be searching there or not, and whether they had the correct permits. There was some infighting between different organizations that have been looking for these wrecks. Uh, but once again, we have First Nations people to thank for knowing where these shipwrecks are. It's such an I told you so moment. Like, we told you they were there. We've been saying they were there. Well, we didn't know. No, but we told you. <laughs> well, and with the Erebus, it was a, even, like, literally more than a century of <laughs> people being like, hey, it's over there. And uh, only suddenly now. All right. It is over there. Uh, so that is our first installment of Unearthed for 2016. And we are going to be back with another installment. It's got a little bit more of a hodgepodge of various things in our next episode. But for now, I have some listener mail. Hooray! This listener mail is about our recent episode on the Attica prison uprising. And it is from a listener who has asked to be kept anonymous. And he says, Dear History Ladies, thank you for your podcast. I listen to it all the time. 
driving, riding the train, working. I love it. I just got out of federal prison or really federal camp. And I can tell you that the current situation at the federal camp that I was at is very similar to what you're describing in the conditions at Attica. Feather bedding is a new term to me, but it was pervasive. I worked in the welding shop, so we were busy and made things all the time. The attitudes of the guards, the commissary situation, throwing out our books, just any books, they considered uh, they considered them a fire hazard. The camp system started in the 70s, I think, as an afterthought. Most camps were not built, uh, but were something else before, like a hospital or a school. My camp was very small, 130 guys, and it was a wreck building to a golf course. It was never meant to house people. Often in the winter, the heat would go out for a week at a time. The staff solution was to install permanent radiators in each office as it occurred with regularity. If you want to know more, I can tell you, but thank you for the segment. I find it very accurate. Uh, and then he, he thanks us. Um, thank you, uh, anonymous listener. Um, we have gotten so many at this point from, from multiple sides, uh, folks writing to us about that particular episode, whether people whose family members have been incarcerated or themselves have been incarcerated or people who work in corrections, um, or people who are working as uh, prison reform advocates, just kind of all over the place. It's been really interesting. And I think of all the subjects we have covered on the show, the one that has brought in the most, uh, the most personal recollections from so many people who are tangential to so many different aspects of the thing we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have been delightfully surprised by, by how many angles we've had in terms of our, our listener response to that, which is quite lovely. Yes. And a lot of those uh, emails have been incredibly generous and thoughtful. So thank you so much to everyone. Uh, you can write to us about this or any other podcast at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History or Tumblr, MissedInHistory.tumblr.com or on Pinterest and Instagram at Mist in History. As we've said, uh, we've been keeping up with these unearthed things on Pinterest for the last few years. I'm considering another solution for that next year because the pin board is just way too big now. <laughs> you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find out all kinds of information about archaeology and history, anything else your heart desires. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes to all the episodes Holly and I have ever done, including all the links to all these stories that we have talked about today and the couple of specific uh, things we said we would link to, like that 3D reconstruction of Richard III. Uh, so you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Music